Advent is upon us, as, as Gary said earlier. Uh, Dale, will, Dale will preach uh, Christmas Eve for us, uh, one message, and aside from that one, uh, Acts 13 is going to be our headquarters. Each Advent Sunday, we're going to come to Acts 13, and then Paul is, is going to send us out uh, to several Old Testament passages uh, to identify the resurrected Jesus as the ultimate heir to David's throne. And so we'll get a little bit of Easter as well during Advent, the resurrection alongside the incarnation. But with how things play out, Jesus' resurrection became a key turning point for the disciples' understanding of the Old Testament. The resurrected Jesus taught them how the Old Testament points to himself. And then once he was exalted, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to illumine the disciples' understanding as they read the Old Testament. They learned to preach Christ according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament passages that we'll cover uh, will reveal who God's Son is and why God's Son came. And this will help us to celebrate Jesus' first coming more rightly and, and more, more fully. For instance, when you consider the nativity, does it ever cross your mind that this child was born to dethrone you? When you consider the baby in a manger, does it ever occur to you that God gave him to overthrow your self-rule. That God sent him to replace your kingdom with his own. That God became man not because the world was so great, but because the world must stop pretending to be so great. Part of God's grace in the incarnation is that he gives us a son who overturns our corrupt rule to replace it with his perfect rule. Is that what you think about it at Christmas time? It's certainly something we, we should think about. Advent is God ascending the rightful king to exalt his throne above all others. What's so striking, though, is, is that he does it in, in a manner the world would, would never expect. The king, first, he sets aside his rights to be seen as the glorious one. And he humbles himself and becomes a child, servant of all. But still, he comes to rule. We'll see that today from Paul's use of Psalm 2 and Acts 13. And before we get there, we need to catch up with Paul and his companions. They've been in Cyprus spreading the gospel, and then we come to verse 13. It says that Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. 
Okay, we have Jews, the law and the prophets read, a captive audience, and the leader asks if Paul has something to say. That's what you call a softball in evangelism. Right, Paul knocks this out of the park. He, he, of course he has something to say. He stands up and begins a word of encouragement. But before I read this word, we need to understand its character and its, its placement. Okay, in terms of its character, this word shares several similarities with Peter's sermon back in Acts chapter 2. Both preach that God fulfills his promises in Jesus. Both preach Jesus' righteous life, Jesus' atoning death, Jesus' resurrection. And, and both preach Jesus as the ultimate king in David's line, even using some of the same psalms, and in particular Psalm 16. Now that's important because some scholars read the New Testament and and they conclude that Peter and Paul do not preach the same gospel. They'd even say that Paul corrupted the religion of Jesus and the disciples, that Paul invented Christianity. But here we see Paul preaching the same gospel, and he does so from the same Old Testament text. The similarities are also important in terms of its, of its placement. Paul has preached other sermons to this point, but, but this is the one Paul uh, uh, Luke highlights, and he puts it here for a reason. As the book of Acts begins to shift from largely the ministry of Peter to the Jews, and it's going to shift now to Paul's ministry among the Gentiles, we see that the gospel that saves the Jews is the same gospel that saves Gentiles. That Jesus' rule as the Davidic king over the Jews is just as crucial for you to understand and for me to understand as Gentiles. Jesus' kingship for Israel is also for the world. And with that in mind, let's walk through Paul's message. Verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of, out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Paul begins with an overview of Israel's storyline, and it stretches from Abraham all the way to David. And his primary goal is this. God shows grace to Israel throughout their history. God chose you. God made you great. God led you out. God was patient with you. God fought for you. God gave you a land and judges and a king. And, and then that king re rebelled and God gave you a better king, David. This is just grace 
grace, grace all along the way. Now, it's, it's also true that after David dies, his son Solomon eventually sinks Israel into great wickedness. The nation forsakes the Lord and the Lord judges them. He, he exiles them. Israel proves that sin rules them just like sin rules the world. Truly, they need a savior. But what Paul is doing here is he's racing them to David to show that the story of God's grace toward Israel didn't end with King David. Rather, the story of God's grace to Israel climaxes in the gift of King Jesus. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Here's here's Advent in the book of Acts. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. So what does Jesus do? What what is it that makes him Savior? Well, he lived the perfect life we could not live. It says they, they found no guilt in him. Uh, He died not for sins that were his own. He died for our sins. He died in our place as a curse. God said, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He took our punishment. And God then raised him from the dead to vindicate Jesus. And that's the good news Paul announces. But as we keep reading, the good news gets even richer as Paul sends us to several Old Testament passages. Uh, Verse 31. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. Paul preaches Christ according to the scriptures. And by doing so, he identifies Christ as the fulfillment of of several Old Testament passages. Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16, all of them anticipate uh, God raising up a unique king in David's line. The whole of Israel's salvation and ours hangs on God fulfilling these promises. 
And so I want to take the next three weeks to understand the promises that are bound up with these Old Testament passages. And by doing this, we'll better understand who God's Son is and why God's Son came. So let's go to Psalm 2 and see what we might learn about God's Son and why God sent Him into the world. You can find that on page 448 if you're uh, using Pew Bible. Psalm 2 is one of my favorites. Alongside Psalm 1, it introduces us to the Psalms and, and what the Psalms are all about. God manifesting His reign on earth through His anointed King and, and why that should compel our worship and, our, and give us hope. Psalm 2 itself develops in four scenes. Scene 1. Hostile rulers plot against God. Verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Hostile rulers plot against God. Essentially, these people hate the rule of God's word. Okay, we are told in Deuteronomy 17 that the king, when he was installed as king, he was to take the law and he was to write down in a book, hand copy, that whole law. And he was to read in that law all the days of his rule. He was to soak in God's word. Or, let's use the, the language of Psalm 1. He was to delight in God's word and meditate on it day and night. It's by delighting in this word and meditating on this word that the king would fear the Lord and he wouldn't grow proud and he would lead the people as God intended. In other words, as the king governed by God's word, God's rule would be manifested on the earth. You see, these nations, these hostile nations, they want none of that. They plot their own little coup. And interestingly enough, the word behind the plot here is the same word in Psalm 1 for meditate. Instead of meditating on God's word, these rulers meditate on ways they can resist God's rule and eventually overthrow God's rule. They rage against God's anointed king, his Mashiach here, his Messiah. And in doing so, they rage against God himself. The only thing is that their plots are comical. When it says, why do the nations rage? It's not a genuine question. Like God scratching his head, like... No, it's a rhetorical one. David is baffled by the nation's insanity. Why in the world would you do that? You're nuts. Why is their plotting so insane? Well, David tells us in the next two scenes. Scene one, God laughs with absolute sovereignty. Verse four says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the first reason their plots are so silly. God laughs with absolute sovereignty. David lifts our gaze from these little earthly plots to, to God's heavenly rule. God laughs because the scene couldn't be more lopsided. I mean, the creator versus these little grasshoppers of a, of a people. He, he holds their atomic structure intact and gives them breath. And would they conspire to overthrow them, throw him? It's like the Lilliputians in Gulliver's Travels. They're about the size of, of Gulliver's little finger, and yet they march around proudly tying him down, hoisting their ladders on his shipwrecked body. With one swipe, he could smash them all. But Gulliver plays along. The Lord doesn't play along. In jealous passion for his glory, he tolerates no rebellion. He roars from heaven with fury. The, the idea is he's, he's blazing at the nose, what we might call red-faced, angry. He roars from heaven. And notice the declaration he makes in his wrath, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion represents the place of God's authority it's, it's the mountain he chose for his dwelling and his throne. And it's holy because God's presence sanctifies it. This decree that he makes, it falls like a gavel, silencing the chaotic chatter of the nation's courtroom. Kings and nations chatter their plots. Peoples are, are raging and scheming, but God gets the final word. It's like God calls, checkmate, now lay your king down. My king reigns. Scene three then gives another reason their plots are so silly. God decrees his son's worldwide dominion. God decrees his son's worldwide dominion. Verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If scene two was the, the heavenly declaration of God's rule, scene three is its historical manifestation. This king will exercise God's heavenly rule in history. And this king will have God's Yes, to every one of his prayers. This king will spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. This king will rule the nations with unstoppable power. And oh yes, this king will be God's son. In what sense though? The best help for us comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. We have good reason to believe that, that 2 Samuel 7.14 stands behind Psalm 2. And we, we have good reason to believe that because the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament 
uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, he actually connects Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, 14 right next to each other to make the same point about God being, uh, God, uh, Jesus being the superior son, the son that's superior to, to, to angels. So he's bringing those two together for us. And if you go back and read 2 Samuel 7.14, it falls right in the middle of God's covenant with David, with the Davidic king. God will make him a dynasty. He will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But something else was this. God promised to relate to the future Davidic king as a father relates to a son. The point was this, as a son imitates his father, the Davidic king was to imitate God, was to imitate God's rule on earth. So when God tells the the Davidic king in, in Psalm 2, you are my son, Today I have begotten you, or, or today I have become your father. It speaks of the promise of this Davidic kingship. For God to become his father was for God to install him as the Davidic king, as his representative son on earth. But can we say more? Can, should we see more? A few clues suggest we should see more. David's kingship didn't always represent God's rule perfectly. I mean, like when he took advantage of Bathsheba, for example. David never quite inherited all the nations. Uh, David's kingdom never covered the ends of the earth. David never exercised universal judgment. David, David's son Solomon could, could boast none of those things either, nor could any of the other kings in Israel. Meaning, however often Psalm 2 might have been spoken over other kings within David's line throughout history, it ultimately points to a future king who would actually fill these shoes. This king would represent God's rule on earth perfectly. This king would faithfully carry out God's word in his rule. He is a king against whom the nations rage because of his faithfulness to God. A king who will manifest God's presence and authority fully. A king whose rule would cover the earth. And a king who serves as God's son. All of a sudden, Psalm 2 starts sounding a whole lot like other prophecies we, we emphasize at Christmas, like Isaiah 9-6, this child to be born, this, this son that was to be given. The government would rest on his shoulders. He'd be wonderful counselor, prince of peace of his kingdom. There would be no end, right? That, that's him. That's the coming son king in David's line. Well, the New Testament then identifies Jesus Christ as this king. Consider Luke's birth narrative, for instance. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. The angel tells Mary, Jesus will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus was born to rule like the son of Psalm 2. Or, or, or um, Mary is, is pregnant with Jesus later in, in Luke's birth narrative, and, and, and she she sings this song, and within that song, she talks about how this son will tear down the mighty from their thrones. Jesus was born to rule like the son of Psalm 2. And where do you suppose the climax of the nations raging against God occurs? It occurs at the cross of Christ. Acts chapter 4, we saw this a while back, actually applies Psalm 2 Uh, When Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles all gather against, against Jesus to crucify him, to do to him whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. The crucifixion of Jesus is the epitome of the world's rage against God, and yet Jesus remains faithful even to the point of death. He dies to see his Father honored, In the deliverance of rebels, he entered a world where nations raged against him, but he willingly died to inherit them. And where do you suppose the climax of God installing this Davidic king occurs? Most decisively, it occurs at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's argument in Acts 13.33, which we read a minute ago. We, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. God installed Jesus as ultimate heir to David's throne at his resurrection. It's not saying that Jesus was less than son prior to his resurrection. Some have tried to argue this way before. Rather, God sent him as son and confirmed throughout his earthly ministry that he was son. Baptism, you are my son. Transfiguration, you are my son. And then what happens? God raises him from the dead and Paul quotes this psalm. So it's not that he was less than son prior to his resurrection. Rather, God sent him as son, confirmed throughout his earthly ministry that he was in fact son, and then there's another sense in which Jesus had a mission to complete as a man, as the representative son of David. And not just the representative son of David, but also the son of Israel and the son of Adam, ultimately, and all humanity. Inheriting the nations as his possession was contingent on him obeying his father as a man in his role as Davidic heir. In other words, the right to rule the nations wasn't given him simply because he was God. In that sense, Jesus always has ruled the nations. He never stopped ruling the nations when he became a child. 
But Jesus, in another sense, had to earn that right now as a man, as the God-man. And God rewarded his son's obedience with an inheritance of nations and worldwide dominion. He was born to live, die, and rise again to replace our corrupt rule with his perfect rule over the nations. The moment the world thought they dethroned Jesus, he was in the process of dethroning us and replacing every evil that ruled us with his own perfect rule. This is why you, you, you get places like, um, like Romans 1-4 where, where he talks about God, the, the gospel concerning God's son. He was descended from David according to the flesh and declared son of God in power. It wasn't that he was not son prior to becoming the Davidic heir, but later he was declared son of God in power. That means he now, as the God-man, ruled, or in Matthew 28, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's a given authority. And when did that happen? After his resurrection. Never had he reigned from heaven as the God-man before that day. Now, as man, he rules everything. Or Philippians 2 puts it like this. Though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that means he didn't cling to his rights to be the glorious, to be seen as the glorious one, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, note that, therefore, based on his obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every Name. So Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king of Psalm 2. Not simply because he's God the Son, but because he came Son in the sense of the Davidic heir who represents God's rule on earth. So what does that mean for you and me? If, if God has sent this king from Psalm 2 and his name is Jesus Christ, what does this mean as well as for everybody else in the world? Well, that brings us to scene four. The Lord summons all to obey the Son. The Lord summons all to obey the Son. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So if God reigns and gives worldwide dominion to Jesus Christ, if He has the universal power and authority to consume you with His wrath, to dash your life to pieces... The response is pretty straightforward. Like the, the, the most rational response is quit rebelling against him and surrender yourself to him. Forsake your quest for autonomy. Forsake your quest for power. Forsake your quest for status. Forsake your quest for sinful pleasures and surrender yourself to this true king with all humility. What's that look like? Well, he tells us, serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. We're gonna, we're gonna, this is what faith looks like. Serve the Lord with fear. The word behind serve is sometimes translated as honor or, or worship. The idea isn't just to, to do the Lord a service. Check that off. 
I went to church. I read my Bible. I prayed. No, 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 no. This is to recognize his kingship with your entire existence, your entire being. If if your belief in Christ doesn't give way to this worshipful obedience, then you don't believe in Christ. You don't know what true faith is. You really haven't felt the weight of His glory. You don't revere His holiness. You don't fear His word rightly. You don't see this King for who He is. He is the absolute sovereign and we must serve Him when He says, love one another. We must serve Him when He says, show hospitality and do justice. We must serve Him when He says, show mercy. We must serve Him when He says, flee your sexual immorality. Speak the truth in love. Don't be harsh with your wife. Those are words from this King of Psalm 2. Forgive one another. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Make disciples. And we say, Amen, I will. I will follow you. That's that's not to say it's some kind of bare obedience without emotion and relationship. And it comes from a heart that rejoices in the Lord's rule. Look at it. Rejoice with trembling, he adds. The idea is celebrate His rule with trembling awe. He continues in verse 12 with submission to the Son. He says, kiss the Son. Other translations have pay homage to the Son. That that is, you're so overwhelmed by the, the King's worth You can't believe you're standing in His presence. You can't believe that He would have you unworthy as you are and you bow and you you kiss the ground at His feet. It's not so much of a kiss of affection here. It's a kiss of submission. John the Baptist knew of His greatness. I mean, we read it earlier in Acts 13 when he says, "I'm, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals from His feet. Only slaves untie sandals. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. It's it's like the parable that Jesus tells in in Luke 17 about the slave going to to obey his master. And and the slave comes in and he doesn't ask to prop up his feet or whatever, but but the master sends him out to do other things. And, and, And what does he say? Luke 17, verse 10. All that we can say at the the end of our obedience to Jesus is this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's, that's, That's the heart that stands before this king. We're unworthy to be called slaves. We've only done what was our duty. Serve, submit. The passage also tells us to, to shelter in the Son. Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blesses. If you rage against Jesus, you get His holy wrath. If you run to Jesus for shelter, 
you get His holy blessings. Those, those are the only two options here. But consider that amazing truth for just a little while longer. I mean, this very king who manifests the presence and power of God, this very king who can consume the nations in a moment, this very king who will cover the earth with his rule, he is a refuge for those who kiss him. He is a refuge for those who serve him. He is your place of safety and defense. When you're against him, all of his power stands against you. But when you're with him, all his power works for you. He blesses you with his presence and he, and he gives you the grace to live for his kingdom. He even spreads a feast for you and says, come and eat with me. My blood has made you fit for my kingdom. And at the same time, we shouldn't forget that to side with this king will mean the nation's will begin to rage against us. That's what happens to the disciples in Acts and why they quote this psalm in, in, uh, in chapter 4. They're being persecuted. They've sided with Jesus and now the world is raging against them. But just like the early church took comfort from God's sovereign rule in Psalm 2, when they were persecuted, so can we. The nations will continue their rage against God, but we can be confident that He has installed His King on Zion. How do we know? By resurrection. By resurrection. Jesus reigns from God's place of authority and He must reign there, 1 Corinthians tells us, until the rest of His enemies are placed beneath His feet. Psalm 2 continues to point us to the future as well when Jesus returns to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And, and guess what that will mean for us? Not only were we once part of these nations who gathered and schemed against God and He has rescued us out of those nations and made us part of His inheritance, He actually will make us kings in the kingdom who reign with Him. Check it out. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. It says that he he's commanding them, he's talking to the church in Thyatira, and they're giving themselves to prostitutes and sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. Translate it however you want into pornography, whatever. And he rebukes them and he says, hold fast to what you have until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Isn't that remarkable? You unite yourself to the King of Kings. And not only is all of His power working for you to transform you, He will so defeat and rule and conquer evil in your life that you will be a king when He returns. Reigning the world with perfect peace and glory with Him. And so we pray with this King like He does and ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. And we pray with this king, bring, bring that day, inherit the nations, spread your kingdom from shore to shore. 
Who is God's son? Jesus. He is the ultimate heir to David's throne. Why did he come? To inherit the nations and to spread his rule from sea to sea. He came to dethrone all of our corrupt rule that rages against God and to enthrone himself above all. The world's problem, it rages against God. The solution, God gives us a son. So how will you respond to this son God gave this Advent season? Will you continue plotting against him or will you take your refuge in him? Only the latter leads to blessing. All right, we're going to pray together and then uh, I think we're taking the Lord's Supper.